I want to invite you this morning, would you open your Bible with us to the book of James, James chapter 1, and, and today we're going to finish this chapter, such an important chapter that, that sets the tone for the rest of the four chapters in these final two verses of James chapter 1. And here, what James is doing is that he's encouraging through this entire epistle, the church, the believers, that if you have belief, your belief will behave. It will be followed by a behavior that only validates, that only proves, that only now tests that your faith is real. You see, the Bible teaches that there are not only are saved people, there are also lost people. And then there's lost people who actually think that they're saved. So he says, don't deceive yourself regarding your faith. If your faith is real, it's going to be tested. And there's a series of tests that tell whether you truly trust the Lord, whether or not you truly have been born again. Your faith is tested to be real as it goes through trials. Your faith is tested to be real as it goes through temptations. Your faith is tested to be real in the way that you respond and receive God's word. And that's what James is instructing the church here. He's saying those that have become already believers in Christ, those that have heard the message, those who have received the message, their lives must also respond to that faith, to that truth. Their manner of living must be consistent to their claim of faith. What does that mean for us? That the way that we live our lives must be consistent with the message and truth that we proclaim. A saving faith is always followed by a manifestation. What does that mean? When you've been born again, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Word of God changes your desires, changes your will. There's a transformation that takes place in your life from the inside out. So it's not enough only to know the truth. Know that today. There are many people that have grown up in the church or maybe heard of many messages. They know the truth, but but knowing the truth only will not save you. What's necessary is that we keep the truth for our salvation. In 1 John chapter 2, notice what the apostle says about this. Now, by this we know that we know him. By this you know that you really know him. If we keep his commandments. This is how you know that you know him. If you obey his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments. You say you know him, but you don't obey his word. That person, the Bible says, is a liar and the truth is not in him. You're deceiving yourself. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. This is how we know that we live a life in Christ Jesus. He who says he abides in him ought to himself also walk just as he walked. Your walk says a lot about your faith. How many of us have heard that well-known saying, you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? And here in James, he's saying your faith should be lived out. Faith 
should be in action. Faith should be walked in our daily lives. In fact, we titled the message this morning, Faith in Action. Your faith should be in action. There should be a proof of your salvation in the way that you respond in obedience to God's word. You see, he mentioned already in the verses that we read last week that if you see the truth, the word of God, you see the truth about yourself. But if you turn around and you do nothing about with what you receive, you're deceiving yourself. You look at the mirror, you forget about what you saw, you turn around, nothing changes, then what good is it for you? The information has done you no good. It's not simply in knowing God's word, it's in doing God's word. John 13, 17, Jesus said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You see, it's not about the head knowledge. It's not about how many verses you know, how many messages you've listened to. Whether or not you even come to church, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Here, what James is saying is that you must behave in a way that proves that you truly have been born again. That people realize that they see it in your life. That person's a Christian. I can tell by the way that they walk in their own life. The way that they talk, the way that they behave, their conduct, their character, their humility. So James tells the church, receive the word in purity, in humility, in submission. Be a doer of the word. And now after he's told them to be a doer of the word, in the last two verses of James chapter 1, he says how to be a doer of the word. This is the how now. In two verses, he's going to tell us how to be a doer of the word. Your faith is shown not only by hearing the word of God, but by doing the word of God. And notice, doing it with the right heart. Are you doing it with the right heart? Not just doing it on the outside, but you're doing it from the inside. You know how you know if you're doing it with the right heart? It is shown in three ways. We'll see those in two verses. In your words, in your works, and in your walk. Three distinctives that measure whether or not your faith is real. You will see it by the way that you talk, by your works, by the way that you serve, and also by your walk, the way you live your life. So he said, receive the truth. He he said, practice the truth. But now share the truth. Share it with your words. Share it with your walk. Share it with your works. Why don't we stand today as we read these two verses from God's word, James chapter 1, verse 26. And we'll read both of these verses together out loud. It would say this. Let's read together. If anyone among you thinks he is religious, And does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. This one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word tells us the truth about ourselves. And we ask that today we would receive this. And not only receive it, but that we would apply it. Because your word calls for transformation. It calls for life change. It calls for application. And today we would not only be talkers or professors, but also doers 
with the right heart. So Lord, purify our heart, our motives, our intentions right now in Jesus' name. Together we would say, amen. You may be seated. There in those two verses, he describes a real faith by words, by works, by walk. By words, by works, by walk. How does he describe these three things? He says a real faith will be seen in number one, in controlling the tongue. That's a very difficult thing to do for some of us. But if you want to know if you're spiritual or not, how do you control your tongue? Number one. Number two, do you have a concern for the helpless? Do you have a real concern for the helpless? And number three, if your faith is real in your walk, you will avoid worldliness. You will avoid worldliness. Now notice what he says, if anyone among you thinks he is religious, here it begins, your faith is real, and it is very telling whether or not that your faith is real in the way that you control your tongue, in your personal character. This is why James looks at the church, he writes for the church, he's thinking about the church, and he says, if any of you thinks, and I want you to circle the word there in your Bible, thinks, because that's your own personal opinion. How many of us know that oftentimes we think or we hold ourselves to a higher esteem than the reality? We think oftentimes that we are more spiritual than what we really are. We think we're spiritual, and then we leave church, and we, get, we jump on that freeway, someone cuts us off, and we forgot about how we raised our hands at church. We start yelling and screaming and saying and arguing. So he says, if anyone has his own personal opinion, whether you think that you're religious, and that word religious, it's a very important Greek word. It's, it's the Greek word threskos, which means a public outward routine. That means anything that has to do with an outward form of worship. It has nothing to do with the heart. Here it says, if any of you think that you're spiritual because of the outward form of worship, because of your public now appearance, because of an external now form of what you perform or do, if you think that you are religious because of your knowledge, because of your position, because of your church attendance, because of your experience, you may think your religion or you're religious because of the things you do, or you're spiritually right. If you think you're spiritually right, and here's the first fatal flaw, is that one may think they are spiritually right. And due to pride, because of outward presentation, you may think, well, I'm good, I'm right with God. I'm spiritual, I'm more spiritual than the other person. That's the temptation to have a higher esteem of yourself that, that is not true, that is not real. He's saying, you're deceiving yourself. You know what we must have? We must have a humble estimation about ourselves. Here what he's referring to is this outward religion where there's no evidence of change from the inside. You may think that on the outside you're good, but on the inside, in your heart, nothing has changed. In fact, you're far from God. You think you're right with God, but you're far from God. Is that not what Jesus said about the scribes and the Pharisees? In Matthew chapter 23, would you note this this morning? 
23 verse 1, he, Jesus says, and Jesus spoke to the multitudes and the disciples, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Notice, they have position. Therefore, whatever they tell you, observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works. They're the scribes and the Pharisees, and because of their pride and self-righteousness, they think they're spiritually right because of how they appear on the outside. And whatever they tell you, do that, but don't do what they do. For they say, they talk, but they don't do. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Notice what Jesus calls them, hypocrites. You're an actor. You're a stage actor. The word hypocrite means to mimic, one that would put on a costume or a mask to pretend to be something that they were not. For you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but the inside are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Outside, you look great. You may look spiritual. You may fit in. But inside, notice what happens there. There's extortion. There's self-indulgence. You just know how to play the part really good. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish. Then the outside will be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he calls them, for you are like whitewashed tombs. What's a whitewashed tomb? They would paint the outside of the tomb white. It would look beautiful on the outside. And you indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside you're full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear. That's a very important word that Jesus calls out the Pharisees and the scribes with. You just appear to be righteous before men. But inside, notice, you're full of hypocrisy. You're full of lawlessness. You're full of sin. Here James is saying the same thing. You who think that you're spiritually right because you're good at giving an appearance. Do you see how challenging this is, this verse? You who think you're spiritually right because of the things that you do by giving an appearance by performance, by works. No, there in verse 26, this is a a true outward profession, an indication that your spirituality, that your faith being real is from the heart. This is how you know you truly are obeying God. You're not going through the motions. You're not pretending to be something that you're not. You, You are not acting. You're the real deal. It's not fake. You know what's interesting about when you're fake is that people can tell. Because you can profess to say something, you can identify, but your life says something completely different. So he would say this, if you think you're spiritually right, but you don't bridle your tongue. Just think about where he starts there. He starts with the number one indication of you being spiritually right happens with a tongue. And he says, and he does not bridle his tongue. Now think about the word bridle. I mean, you ask a group of people, what do you think when you think bridle? So, I mean, all the girls would think, well, wedding? I think wedding. (laughs) No, it's not talking about that. He's talking about the harness that you put on a horse. Would you control a horse that has so much strength and power? With that harness in the bridle there, there's a bit that that controls the horse to go 
from one direction to the other, a small harness that, that is able to control a large horse. Just think about this, the tongue being so small, it's very powerful, very powerful. It's the member that has caused the most problems in the body of Christ. You know what it is? It's the tongue. The tongue can damage your testimony. The tongue can hurt other people. Your tongue can misrepresent God. So he says, if you think you're spiritually right, but you can't even control your tongue, the word bridle means to keep a tight rein. When you hold those reins tight, you, you have control over that horse. You know what it means when you have that horse bridled? You have the horse under submission. If you think you're spiritually right, but you can't submit yourself when it comes to your words, then you're only fooling yourself, he says. He deceives his own, what does he say here? Hearts. Isn't it interesting that he uses the word heart? You're, you're deceiving your own heart because that's where spirituality begins, in the heart. You're only fooling yourself. Your religion, in fact, it's worthless. It's useless. It's, it's accomplishing nothing. This is why he says this one's religion is what? Useless. Your profession, your appearance, the things that you do, that which is external and outward, all of that is in vain. It means nothing. It's futile. You're deceiving yourself. You're lying to yourself. If you can't control your tongue, but you think you're spiritually right because of the things that you do or how you look on the outside, you're only lying to self. It's useless. It's in vain, all of it. Just think about going to a car lot, wanting that newest model of a car. A Mustang, think about the guy, sports car, fully loaded, tricked out in the showroom that most of us can't even afford. <laughs> and you go out, you speak to the salesman. He says, you know what, do you want to buy this? And you know you can't afford it, but you know, how much does it cost just to pretend you can? <laughs> Looks amazing on the outside, new paint job. Sells you the car. You go to try to turn that car on because on the outside, it looks good, but nothing turns on. You open the hood and there's no motor. <laughs> yeah, I forgot to tell you, you have to buy the motor separate. Who wants a good looking car on the outside if there's no power on the inside? Who wants a Christian like that? That there's no power under the hood. You think you're good just because you look good on the outside. So he says one way of obeying God's word to test whether your faith is real is to bridle the tongue. It's with your words. We have to be very careful how we use our words. He goes deep into it in chapter 3 of James. Because some of us don't know how to bridle our tongue. We like to always talk. We like to be very loud, the center of attention, always having to fill the space when no one is saying anything else. It's very important that we bridle control the tongue. You know, on average, people speak 6,000 words a day. Some people actually are raising that average right now. We spend so much time talking. Do you know how to control the tongue? Here, what he's describing in verse 26 is a, a hypocrisy, a, a deception. 
That on the outside, you, you, you are living a self-righteous life, but on the inside, there's no love, there's no trust in God, you're very critical, you're very judgmental with your words towards other people, you talk, you gossip. This profession, he calls it meaningless. The reason why he says this is because many people are deceived about their own walk. The way that you talk says a lot about how spiritual you really are. The way that you talk says a lot about your faith. The Bible speaks regarding how we should speak. And in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, notice what Paul tells the church of Colossae, let your speech always be with grace. Some of us think it says, let your speech always be with gossip. It does not say that. It says, let your speech always be with grace with favor, with gentleness, with patience, with love. That's what grace means. Seasoned with salt. You know when someone something is seasoned, it has flavor. Well, what kind of salt should our words have? It should have the flavor or the character of Christ-likeness. That you may know how you ought to answer each one. People should know by the way that you speak that God is speaking to you. How about that? People should know by the way that you speak that God speaks to you. Always seasoned with grace that you know how you give an answer to people. In Psalms 34 verse 13, the psalmist says that we ought to speak truthfully. Keep your tongue from evil. Bridle that tongue. Control it from speaking anything that's evil. And your lips from speaking deceit. Don't speak any lies. Don't exaggerate. Don't make up things. Keep your words or your tongue from speaking about other people. You know why this is so important for us? In Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, Jesus gives a warning. And the warning that he gives is all about our words. He says, but I say to you that for every idle word, notice every idle word that men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. Did you know that you're going to give an account for everything you said? Well, you know what? Nobody heard it, but God heard it. For every idle word that someone says, you will give an account. For by your words, you will be justified, Christ says. And by your words, you will be condemned. Your tongue, your words, how you speak will be held accountable. In fact, we're encouraged through Scripture to use our words not to destroy, but to build. Today, encourage someone with your words. Build. Use your words as a tool to build someone else spiritually. In Ephesians 4.29, he says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. You've heard it be said many times before. If you have nothing nice to say, then what? Don't say it. You know, so many people, they go up to you sometimes, you know what, I, I need to talk to you. I, I, you know what, I really shouldn't say this, but then don't say it. <laughs> if you have to say, I really shouldn't say this, then you should stop right there. That's a hard stop. It's interesting because this is what the Word of God says. No corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good, man, it's good that I say this. It's necessary, the Bible says, for edification. This, this builds up. 
This edifies, this restores, this encourages, that it may import grace to the hearers. When people hear this, they're going to be built up. They're going to be encouraged. Ephesians 5, verse 3, Paul says this about the tongue again, the fornication. He calls it, he puts it under the category of the works of the flesh, all uncleanness or covetousness. Let it not be named among you as it's not fitting for the saints. Neither filthiness, notice what he says, nor foolish talking. Was it foolish saying that? Bridle your tongue, James says. Or coarse jesting. Sometimes we can be so sarcastic with our words and it's inappropriate. Coarse jesting, that means that you are joking about things or innuendos that are filthy that are you, you're using your words to speak about foul things to thinking they're funny. When someone tells you a joke that is dirty, that is foul, you know what you should do? Stop them. I don't think anything about that is funny because it doesn't edify. It doesn't bring grace to my hearing. It doesn't sit well when you're cultivating a heart that pleases God. He puts coarse jesting and foolish talking under the category of the works of the flesh, which are not fitting, but rather instead, you know what you should use your words for? Giving thanks. Saying thank you, being kind with your words. I saw something recently that said, if speaking to plants kindly helps them grow, just imagine what happens when you speak kindly to humans. And that's what people believe. In Matthew 12, 33, Jesus says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. This is exactly what James is saying. You know truly if you're saved by the fruit that simply comes out of your mouth. Brood of vipers, Christ calls them, Pharisees and scribes. How can you being evil speak good things? Your heart is dirty, but out of your mouth, you think that you can say something good? He would say this, for out of the abundance of the heart, what does it say? You all know it. The what? The mouth speaks. This is how you know your faith is real. A religion that doesn't transform the heart, that, that's the key there. The heart accomplishes nothing. Summed up, verse 26, a religion that doesn't transform the heart. And an outward appearance, an outward form of worship, an outward form of works that doesn't transform the heart accomplishes nothing. He's telling them like it is. If your Christianity doesn't translate in the way that you live, if your Christianity doesn't translate in the way that you treat other people, then your Christianity is not real then you're really not sincere. Because the way that you live and treat people says something else. Do you see here that your faith is verified by the way that you control your tongue? But your faith is also verified by your concern for the helpless. Verse 27. And he divides it there, the concern for the helpless, in two different forms. Number one, a life of service, and then a life of sanctification. He says this, apply the word without deception. So pure 
An undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. You want to apply the truth? You want to know that you're not deceived? Well, let me tell you what true faith, true worship, true Christianity, what it looks like. This is what it looks like. It looks pure and it looks undefiled because there are things that are not pure. They're ulterior motives sometimes. They're hidden agendas. There are people that outwardly are trying to be kind, but inwardly they're insincere. You can't trust them. You want to know when it's real, when it's pure, when it's undefiled. In fact, that word pure means unstained Christianity. Undefiled religion or faith. Undefiled would mean that it is genuine. It's, it's free from contamination. It's free from hypocrisy. You can have a church and many people gather together, but, but if these things are not taking place in the church, then God's not pleased with it because it's just an outward show. It's just a production. It's just to give an appearance. It's just to display on the outside. And this is what he's saying. If you want something that's pure and you want something that's real, those two words, and they're pure and real before who? Before God and the Father is this. If you want Christianity that's pure and real in the sight of God, in the sight of God is important that we look at because his evaluation is the one, only one that matters. It, it doesn't say pure and real in the sight of your friends. In the sight of those that you do favors for, in the sight of those that you have helped before, none of those things are the things that it mentions here. It says before God in his sight is the one that truly matters. And it begins here by saying a faith that works, it's a faith that meets the needs. This here is what pleases God. This is what, what tells, what shows before God that your faith is real, that it's coming from the heart, that there's been a transformation, that you're not living for yourself, that there's no selfishness. So he says this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. A concern for the helpless. How do you know your faith is real? That you have a concern for the helpless. You're caring for orphans. You care, you're interested for widows in their trouble. Now he's not referring to the people that need help who are able to support themselves. There are many people that said, you know what, just help me. I need to be supported by you, but they're able to support themselves. He's not referring to that group. He's referring to the helpless in the Jewish society, like the orphan and the widow. Well, why is this pure and undefiled religion? Because this is the heart of God. Think about this right now. This is God's heart for us. He cares for orphans and widows. This is sincere. This is real. This is what pleases God. In his sight, he cares about this. The people who are responding in their faith with compassion. That they care for those who can't reciprocate the same love and service in return. Sometimes we want to serve people, but we serve people that can serve us in return. You want to know if your faith is real? When you start to love and serve people that can't repay you for what you've done for them. In Psalm 68, verse 4 and 5, the psalmist would say this, describing God, sing to God, sing praises to his name, extol him who rides 
on the clouds. By his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. Notice what he calls him now. A father to the fatherless, a defender of the widows, is God in his holy habitation. Who is he? He's a father to the fatherless. He's a defender of the widows. Isaiah 1.17, God's word tells us this, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. This is the heart of God. This is what God's interested in. And notice what he, how he describes it there in verse 27. You want to know if you're real? You actually care about people who have needs. If you don't care about people who have needs that are helpless, then your faith is shallow. You, you may not even really be born again. There's no heart for those that are in need. And he says, this is not a one-time event. This is an ongoing care that you're helping, that you're serving demonstrating true Christian sacrificial love and service to those who can't repay you. That's exactly what pleases God. You see, after we see the truth about ourselves and we look in the mirror of God's word, the seed of the word of God is implanted in our hearts. You know what happens now? Now we can see the needs of other people. Because before we're blinded in our pride and our selfishness. You don't care. You can't see. You can't remember. You don't think because your eyes are all focused on self. Living without selfishness, this is what God accepts. So he says true spiritual people, you know what they do? They express their faith in practical acts of generosity and of service. Two things, generosity and love. Your faith is verified in your words, controlling the tongue. Your faith is verified in your works by practical acts of generosity and love. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, charity and purity are the two great garments of Christianity. Generosity, love, and purity are the two great garments of Christianity. Those are the things that we must clothe ourselves in. Our faith is demonstrated that it is real in the way that we obey God, but also in the way that we love others. Do you remember when Jesus washed the disciples' feet in John 13? And then he told them this, by this all will know that you are my disciples. By this all will know that you are truly my followers. They'll recognize you by this. Not, not by what you say, not by simply how you talk to people, what you say you do at church or whether or not that you're involved in ministry. Notice what he says, if you have love for one another. That, that's what truly gives it away. That is a true identification of a follower of Jesus Christ, that you love people. If you don't love people, then there's something wrong in the heart. So here he's saying your faith is shown when you love people, when you're generous, when you serve, when you're available to meet the needs that are around you. Put a marker there in James and turn with me in first, to 1 John in your Bible. To the right, 1 John chapter 3. And I want you to look there at what John would say regarding our faith, regarding us being children of God. 1 John 3 verse 10, he says, In this, the children of God... And the children of the devil are manifest. You want to separate, you want to identify 
whether you're a child of God or the child of the devil, these are how they are separated. They're manifest. They're shown. They're proven. Whoever does not, verse 10, practice righteousness is not of God. If you say you're a Christian, but you're living a life of sin, you're not of God. Nor is he who does not love his brother. And the person that doesn't love their brother, they're not of God either. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This is the message that you've been hearing, and you've been hearing it from the beginning. (laughs) This is not a new message. You should love one another, not as Cain, who was the wicked one and murdered his brother. What did Cain do outwardly? He looked good. He, He brought a sacrifice that he thought, man, this is good sacrifice. But inside his heart, there was wickedness. There was hate. There was jealousy. He killed his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous because they both had different hearts. Don't marvel, my brother, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. We know that we pass from spiritually dead to spiritually alive because we love people. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But this we know, love, that because he laid down his life for us, we also ought to lay our life down for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods, notice what love looks like in practical ways, and sees his brother in need. Whether it's orphan, widows, brothers that are in need, And you shut up your heart from him. If you have no heart to help, notice, if you have no heart to help, how does the love of God abide in him? How can you say that God's love abides in you if you have no heart to help those that are helpless? Here, two examples are given to us that are very practical. The orphan and the widow. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue but in deed and in what? In truth. You want to know that your love is real? Then back it up with some actions as well. Indeed, that means in in, in action, in doing, in truth. We remember the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus gave in Luke chapter 10. What did he say? That they're clearly the example of the priest and the Levite. who They thought they were spiritual. The priest walks by, the Levite walks by. They claim to be righteous, but you know what? They failed to minister to the man who was in need. What did it say that one first came and they walked on the other side of the road? <laughs> they saw the man and notice what we do oftentimes. We see people in need and we start to try to avoid them, start to walk on the other side of the road. They walked on the wrong side of the road, not the side of compassion, but the side of selfishness. How many Christians today are walking on the wrong side of the road, thinking, self-deceived, that they're righteous? Here he says, we express faith in practical needs, both in the fellowship and outside of the fellowship, when we participate and when we get involved. Did you know that your faith grows not only when you receive? You know how your faith also grows? When you give. That's how your faith grows, not only when you receive, but your faith grows when you give. That's the heart of God, that we would be givers, that we would be generous, that we would participate, that we would get involved, that we would meet the practical needs of those people around. 
And it's so amazing because God also brings those needs to our attention. And you know why he brings those needs to your attention? So that you can meet those needs. This week, just studying for this chapter, I think God has a way every time you teach the Bible of that week, wanting you to put it into practice. I get a call about a pastor's wife who's a widow who needs help moving some furniture from her house. I said, Lord, this is a practical way as to how we can help a widow. What about orphans? What about caring for those that are in need? This is amazing. Next service, second service, we're going to dedicate a baby. From a woman who was a widow, she became a widow. After that, she adopted an orphan. James 1.27 lived out. Isn't that a praise report? So he says here, you know your faith is real by controlling your tongue, by having a concern for the helpless. But number three, avoiding worldliness. Let's see your heart. We'll see your heart by how you talk. We'll see your heart by whether you help. And we'll see your heart by the way that you walk. The three indications of your heart being changed or not. So he says there in verse 27, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Keep yourself. That means continue to refuse to let the world corrupt you. Don't let anything sinful corrupt you. That, that's how you know your faith is real. We're in the world, but we know that we're not of the world. Here is speaking all about your walk. First, your words, then your works, then your walk here. And to keep yourself unspotted. Unspotted means unpolluted, unstained, uncontaminated from the world. You know what the devil wants to do? He wants to use the world to contaminate the church, to contaminate the Christian. This is the best way to minister to the need to the people that are around you is, first of all, to be free from the world's contaminations, to be free from the world's defilement. Notice what he says, apply God's word in your life without compromise. You can't say, well, you know what? I want to live a holy life, but here and there, I'll compromise in this area. You know what that's called? You're being spotted now. You have little spots now in your life of compromise. Unspotted means that it is pure and clear of defilement. You get a, a cup of clean water, you, you, you drop in just a, one drop of an outside substance. You think that water is pure now? No, it has been contaminated. There he says, keep your life unspotted, uncorrupted, uncontaminated from the world. The exhortation is very clear. You can't live two lives. You can't live a double life and say, you know what, I'm saved. In 1 John 2.15, he says, do not love the world or the things of the world. Don't let those things appeal to you so much so that they draw you away. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If you say you love God, that you don't really love him if you're playing and tampering and compromising with the things of the world. For all that is in the world, notice what he describes it all. The lust of the flesh, what your flesh desires, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are not in the Father, but those are of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of the Father, what does he say? Abides forever. How do you live your life? You see, we get oftentimes so involved in doing. I'm doing the right things. I'm helping the 
helpless, I'm caring, I'm concerned, I'm busy doing those things, and we get so concerned in doing that we forget in being. That's great that you do those things, and yet, yes, they say something about your heart. Yes, they do. But it's important that you live a holy life. Those things in and of themselves are still not enough. Keep yourself holy through Bible study, through prayer, through meditation of God's word. Your personal holiness is important. Stop trying to be like the world. Stop trying to be accepted by the world. Stop trying to be approved by the world. Keep yourself unspotted for one thing, the world. To live a life of sanctification. What does the word sanctification mean? That you're set apart for God. You don't do those things anymore. We see it very clearly in the Old Testament in Genesis. We read this Wednesday nights. What happened to Lot? He was a man that was spotted by the world. Well, what did he want to do, Lot? He, he saw something that looked good, and he said, let me live close to Sodom. I'm spotted in his heart. He wanted to live close. He pitched his tent in the wrong place. He disregarded the spiritual climate of that place. So he says, I can live close. It's okay. Nothing bad will happen because of the prosperity of that area, spotted by the world. Eventually, you know what he did? He lived close, then he moved in to that city and became a part of the city's leadership. What was the result for Lot? He lost everything. He was saved by the skin of his teeth. Why? Because he was spotted in his heart. Don't let the world, notice what he's saying here, mark you. Don't let the world spot you. Instead, you know what we should do? Leave a mark on the world that we're living for Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it describes the worship that God pleases, that is pleased by God. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. What is it that pleases God? Holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or worship. This is what pure and undefiled worship looks like, a life of holiness, a life of sanctification. And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed, beginning with the renewing of your mind, that you may prove that which is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This is what pleases God, a life of holiness. You know what James is telling them in only two verses? Don't separate truth and your speech. Don't separate the truth of God's word and your speech. Don't say that you're walking consistent to the truth if your speech says something else. Don't separate the fact that you receive God's truth, God's word. Don't separate that from meeting the needs of other people. Don't separate receiving the truth of God's word and living an upright, holy life. All of these things are telling of the type of faith that you have in Christ Jesus and whether or not you're living in a way that pleases him. They all speak of your heart, your words, your works, and your walk. Let's pray.